If we are to set out on a hike, would not our leader provide us with words of instruction to ensure our success? I'm reminded of my time serving with the Royal Marines at Commando Training Center when I was an exchange chaplain serving with the Royal Marines. See, the capstone event of becoming a commando was a brutal 30-miler, a 30-mile yomp, as they called it. Each recruit had already been called. That's why that they were there, they were paying the price. But they had not yet proved themselves to be successful. They had to complete their mission at commando training. Despite the countless hours of training and instruction and exercises, at this point in which they began their 30-mile yomp, they experienced all sorts of anxieties. And it was at this moment that the leader would provide them with words of instruction, encouragement, and inspiration to ensure their success. He gave them a sense of focus and calm and strength. The scene that's brought before us in the Gospel of Matthew is similar to what I've just described. Christ had already called his disciples. They had been following him and he had been training them. He now deems that it's time for their capstone event. It's time for their commissioning. They are now ready. Moreover, Christ is ready to make them ready and able to complete their mission. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles and your service booklets to the Gospel reading this morning. Let us consider both the why and the how of Christ's Great Commission. Why does Christ commission his disciples? And how must they go and make disciples? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, may we see you. May we worship you. May you rekindle in our hearts a love for you. May the words of my mouth, may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So what are the lessons that we are to learn this morning from this passage? The first lesson that we learn is that our Lord does not take the gospel to the nations personally. That's right, you heard me right. It's not Christ that takes the gospel to the nations personally. No, he has left this task for his church. This is what his disciples are to do. We see this in our passage before us, and we read of this in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. In this final act between Jesus and his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, Christ doesn't provide the great suggestion. He provides the great commission, doesn't he? Christ's good news of salvation must go to every nation and every people, regardless of race or creed or ethnicity, or nationality. And it goes by means of his disciples. It's not a matter of whether his disciples will go or what way they will go about accomplishing this mission. No, Christ is clear of why and how they are to carry out this non-negotiable mission. 
Church, if we be called to follow Christ, then he sets us on mission. There are countless instances that give witness of Christ calling people to come to him so that he may send them forth on mission. If we come to Christ, then we should expect that he will send us forth on mission. The second lesson that we learn is that our Lord directs his disciples to go to the place where he will meet them. We read in verse 16 that the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And in verse 17, we learn that they see him there. You see, Christ had a plan. He had a plan to meet them there. In verse 10, a few verses before, Jesus says, Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While Matthew doesn't specify the mountain, there is no doubt that Christ did. Whether it was before his crucifixion or after his resurrection, Christ told them of the appointed place, the appointed mountain for which they must meet him. Here we find comfortable words. Here we find an important truth. See, the disciples of Christ are not left by themselves. Christ is still working for them. He has a plan to meet them. He's given them instructions. He inspires them. You see, his intent is their personal success. His intent is that they live out the good news. The good news that he has supplied them with. His intent is that they make disciples of all nations. Not only do they have peace, they have purpose. Now I wonder, how much more fruitful would we be if we met Christ? If we met Christ at that place for which he tells us to meet him? You see, the Jews for which this gospel was written would have recognized the significance of this meeting place. Just as God's law had been given on a mountain, the disciples' mission was given on another mountain. This was a divine event, you see. A mountain for the Jew was a divine event. There's great wisdom in what God is revealing to them. And there always is when we meet our Lord. And so I ask you, are we listening to him? Or are we listening to something else? What is occupying our time? Are we drawing from the well of God's word? Or or, or are we making ourselves vulnerable with one another and coming alongside one another? Are we living in the word and the spirit? Christ does not leave his disciples to their own devices. This is good. Christ coordinates a rendezvous, a final rendezvous, so that he provides them with instruction and inspiration, so that he ensures their success in the mission. The third lesson that we learn is how the commissioned disciples are worshipers of Christ. And yet, they're not exempt from experiencing doubt. We read in verse 17 that when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. 
It doesn't say that they greeted him. It doesn't say that they listened to him. It says that they worshipped him. Here we are given a witness of the deity of Christ. This was not a doctrine that was invented in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. No, the disciples worshipped when they saw him. They saw him as the Messiah, who is God. They saw the one who was and is and is to come. The disciples and all the Jews would have certainly known the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. If Christ was God, or if Christ was not God incarnate, the disciples' act of worship would have been idolatry. This small detail has great import. It declares Christ as God. And notice how Christ received their worship. He doesn't rebuke them for worshiping him, does he? No, he receives their worship. That is what disciples ought to do, is to worship their Lord and their Savior. But what do we do with the final part of this verse? But some doubted. Or as other translations read, some hesitated. There's much debate among scholars as who these doubting persons were. But it certainly reminds us of Thomas's struggle to believe, doesn't it? Perhaps the lesson to be learned is that commissioned disciples are not exempt from experiencing doubt and hesitation. Some of us here today may be teetering back and forth, hoping that he is the Son of God, but not entirely sure. And so I say to you this, first, know that doubts do not equal condemnation. There's hope. Hope is not lost. Christ came for those who would rather believe in anything and everything else but him. Christ came for the lost. There is hope. And second, hear this word of warning. Do not be content with doubting. There's no hope in it. And neither is there there any virtue in it or anything commendable. There's never been a statue erected of someone who was a cynic or skeptic. God can certainly use our critical minds, but if they be commendable, they must be filled with more faith than doubt. So then, let us ready ourselves so that when Christ comes, we do not doubt, but like Thomas, we fall on our faces and embrace him as our Lord and our God. The fourth lesson that we learn is why and how Christ's disciples are to make disciples. We learn why and how we are to make disciples. We read in verse 18 that Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in verse 19, Christ tells his disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, he says, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
You see, at the very utterance of Christ's great commission, he gives them the right reason and the right way to go and make disciples of all nations. Christ does not provide his disciples with a grand idea. The King of Kings provides them with a mandate and a promise. It's not a matter of whether they will go and make disciples, but how and why they will go and make disciples. And the answer is unequivocally Christ. Because all authority has been given to him. Christ's disciples go not just in peace, they go in purpose because they go in the power of Christ. Now notice how Christ doesn't instruct them on where to go, does he? He doesn't do this because he's already done this. He called the disciples to follow him in Matthew chapter 4. He made clear to them the way in which they are to go in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. Now we are told that Christ came and spoke to them in verse 18. He comes to them. He speaks to them. You see, this passage is not about calling. It is about commissioning. It's already assumed that they are called. Even though the word go is translated in imperative in the English, it is literally a participle in the Greek. Perhaps then it's better translated, as you go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. As you are in Christ, as you move in Christ, therefore, make disciples of all nations. You see, the reason that most English Bibles translate it as a command is because of the type of participle for which it is functioning. There's a simultaneous action that is incredibly profound that's happening here. You see, the call and the commission somehow converge. There's a recapitulation. We are plunged deeper and deeper into Christ as we move in Christ. We are on the move in Christ when we are making disciples. And when we are making disciples, we are on the move in Christ. But this is not to confuse Christ's command. You see, his command is clear. It is to make disciples. That's the imperative. The point of this simultaneous action between the participle go and the imperative to make disciples is that Christ is giving them the reason and the way that they are to go. Or should I say that they are to make disciples. It's the very authority of Christ. It's Christ himself in all of his power. And this is why John tells us that it's because he first loved us that we are able to love him. That's the reason that, that we may make disciples. And that's the way that we may make disciples. That's the way that we may fulfill our mission. We must love Christ. We must know that he loves us. You see, the Great Commission is about the great news of Christ that sends us forward to what we are to do. And it not only sends us forward, but it plunges us deeper into the depths of the triune Godhead. 
We are to make disciples by baptizing and teaching others to obey Christ's commands. Here again are participles, baptizing and teaching. Here again we find these participles that are linked to Christ's command of making disciples. Why? Because this is how we are spiritually dipped and plunged into the very love of Christ. And if we be dipped into his love, then we know the saving authority of the triune God for which Christ reveals. See, the Great Commission calls us to not simply convert souls, it calls us to strengthen souls, including our own. Our souls are strengthened when we walk in obedience to fulfilling this commission. It's good for us to study Christ. It's good for us to see and practice the visible sign of the inward spiritual grace. I'm talking about baptism. It's good for us to practice it. When we do all that Christ did and taught, when we are students of our Lord and Savior, we are not only able to convert souls, we are able to strengthen them too. Yes, we teach others to obey all that Christ has commanded. And we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see, baptism is not a formality. The word baptism or baptize literally means to dip, to plunge. We have been plunged into the Godhead through Christ. And guess what that means for us? That means that we have the authority of Christ. We have his power. We have his victory. So then baptism is not simply a sign of one's faith, but a sign of God's faithfulness and victorious power. Yes, we should remember our baptisms. This is why it is a sign and a seal that strengthens our souls. And this is why the apostles not only preached, but baptized individuals and entire households, because baptism is a seal of Christ's promises for those who believe. Just as circumcision was a seal of promise to the Jew, baptism is a seal of promise to the Christian. And we are to make disciples by teaching others to observe all that Christ has commanded us. How? By teaching the whole counsel of God. That's how. By obeying Christ's commands. That's how. We must devote ourselves to this plan. Let us prepare to hear and read and digest the whole counsel of God's word. Come to morning prayer. Utilize the daily office lectionary or some other Bible reading plan. Hear, read, and digest God's word. This is important for us if we are to share the good news of Christ. You see, the Great Commission is not a matter of whether or when we will go, but how and why Christ will have us to go. It is about His glory. It is about our union with Him. We go by way of Christ's love. We go by reason of His victorious 
and absolute power. If we are to be what we must be, we must start asking ourselves, what is the reason that we must go? What is the reason that we must make disciples? We must start spiritually dipping ourselves in Christ. Let us never grow weary in studying Christ and his teachings. Let us never grow weary in baptizing souls in the name of the Father who created and the Son who redeemed and the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. To ever walk in the joy and the purpose of the Great Commission, we must walk in the faith and the repentance of his call. We must receive and we must reciprocate his love. But perhaps we are stuck. Perhaps we are like some of those who doubted. Perhaps we are stuck in grief and loss. After all, the disciples have been overwhelmed by the happenings in Jerusalem. They have been struck by the sudden loss of their beloved Lord. Not only was this the one for whom they loved, this was the one that, for whom they cast all their hopes. Sure, he had risen, but they were still filled with questions and concerns. And so I ask, what are we stuck in? Is it fear and worry? Is it grief and loss? Maybe it's deep-seated desires and longings. Whatever it is, look to Christ and see the wealth for which he has for us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So that he might give it to us. We have not only peace in his atonement, we have purpose in his commission. And as we go, as we worship our Lord and Savior, we have certain things that we must do. We must make followers and students of Christ. More than Anglicans, we must make lovers of Christ. More than making things appealing, we must make disciples of Christ. More than anything else, we must make others followers of Christ who bear his name and are willing to be led by the Spirit into the wilderness and are willing to drink the cup that the Father has for them. We must make followers, lovers, disciples, students of Christ. And the final lesson that we learn is Christ's promise to be with us to the very end. This is what he promises. This is how he ends this gospel with this glorious promise. We read Christ's final words in this gospel. He says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These words are comforting. These words are encouraging and strengthening. Christ does not end with a final admonition. He ends with a promise. Wherever his disciples went, whatever borders they crossed, whatever troubles they endured, or hardships they faced, Christ was with them. 
So we should have no fear. We should be not filled with fear. We should be filled with hope and joy. Christ is no longer present on earth. The Holy Spirit mysteriously raises us to be with him in heaven. This is what Article 28 means when it says that we receive the Lord's Supper in a spiritual and heavenly manner. It means that the Holy Spirit is raising us up into heavenly places with Christ in all his glory at his throne. We are present with Christ. He's not left his throne again to come down to us. No, the Holy Spirit has raised us up to his heavenly throne. And so I ask, do we sense the consolation of the Holy Spirit? Do we sense the comfort and the peace and the strength and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit? Are our hearts encouraged by Christ's presence? Do we see him through the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we see him who has all authority in heaven and upon earth? Let us rest in his promises. Let us rest in his promise. His one single promise that means everything. Let us rest in the promised seal of the Holy Spirit who makes us to be with him and makes him to be with us. We have no reason to fear, church. If Christ is with us, there is no place that we should fear to go. Where are you going? Are you making disciples? He will give you the call. He will give you the focus. He will give you the strength that is necessary to complete this mission. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.